0: Good morning everyone, it is awesome to see you this morning, so happy to be here, it's a pretty full house for us this morning, so it's a blessing to see uh, so many faces here uh, that uh, we miss and uh, that uh, the regular ones we see, I just welcome you as well, welcome all you watching on Facebook, Uh, just a blessing to be with you this morning and uh, we'll be continuing our study this week in Ezra and Nehemiah uh, in a message this week that I'm calling Repentance and we're going to cover chapters 5 and 6 today. Uh, So before we get into the Word, uh, let's go and ask the Lord for help. Uh, Dear Father, uh, we're just so thankful for the opportunity to gather as your children, as we sang this morning, Lord, Uh, great is thy faithfulness, and we're so thankful for you, Lord, and all that you provide. And Lord, now we just ask your Holy Spirit, come, uh, help us with the Word this morning. Uh, Lord, may you just... uh, Trigger our hearts, Lord, and and give us what you have for us this morning. Illuminate the word and may it change us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, last week I mentioned how easy it is to get started on a a weight loss fitness uh, campaign uh, and yet how hard it is to see that thing through. Uh, I've had times in my life where I've resolved to drop a few pounds and I start like a house of fire on Monday and then the weekend comes and uh, all of a sudden I eat a pound of brisket at 10.50 and the whole thing uh, gets derailed, you know? And so that, that can happen to us. I'm sure many of you have had that same experience. Uh, But there's a couple things we can do when we have that experience. Uh, You know, there are 21 meals in a week, so we can decide that we're going to get right back on track, or we can just say, well, I've blown it. I'm just going to blow it big and just go crazy. Uh, And so those are the decisions that we have to make. Well, when we're talking about the Jews and the temple, they blew it big when they got back uh, doing this temple rebuild. They started well, but then everything got off the rails. And we saw last week that Satan was in it, right? First he came and he tried to infiltrate. And when the subtle infiltration didn't work, then he tried to intimidate. And that did work. Uh, They stopped them from building out of fear. And once the uh, intimidation worked, well, then the next thing he did was he got them to procrastinate. And so this was the big thing for them. Uh, For 16 years, from 536, when they stopped building the temple... Uh, until 520, which is where we'll find ourselves today. Instead of relying on God uh, and his strength and his power and his provision uh, to complete this project, they went and they built their own homes, uh, built their own houses. And so what did God do? Well, he sent Haggai and he sent Zechariah to them uh, to prophesy to them, to, to awaken the Jews from their slumber. God said, you've sinned, You're being slothful. You're taking care of your own personal comforts while my house lies desolate. It's time for you to get back on track. And so uh, over chapters 5 and 6, which we'll cover today, we'll see that the Jews repented. And when they did, God uh, was with them. God blessed the work and he blessed his people. And so the question I have for us, the way we're going to apply this to us today, is to ask, have we failed in a task that God has given us? And if so, what are we going to do about it? How are we going, are we going to respond if we've failed? How will we react uh, to that? And the proper response, as we'll see today, is to repent and to get back on the track that God has for us. Uh, so we've had uh, verses one and two uh, read to us already. And what I want you to see here is that God sent the prophets to help Israel, to, to convict the Jews of their sin and to get them back on track. And in fact, uh, Haggai chapter 1 uh, and Ezra chapters 5 and 6 are, are so intertwined that you really can't understand one without the other. And this is why uh, in the email I sent, I asked uh, if you saw that, to, to read the book of Haggai before we came today uh, because it'll be so helpful. Uh, Ezra chapter uh, 5 uh, kind of leads, leads there. Uh, at the end of chapter 1, there's a comma that says uh, that the name of God of Israel who was over them, comma, and then, right after that, we could squeeze the Book of Haggai. Right after that comma, and that is where uh, Haggai's prophecy comes. And then Zerubbabel, the son uh, of Itto, gets up uh, to—I'm sorry—the son of Shealtiel gets up to start to build the temple again. So it's 5:20. Uh, we were in 5:36 last week at the end of chapter four. So Cyrus is dead. His uh, two two of his successors are dead, and now Darius is on the throne. Uh, This is not Darius the Mede, not Darius of Daniel chapter 6, Daniel on the lion's den. This is Darius the king of Persia. He's a different Darius. And so, again, no work has happened on the temple for 16 years. uh, And so this is the setting that Haggai and Zechariah step into. Now, sometimes the prophets come and they predict the future, right? We've seen that. We understand prophecy is sometimes a prediction of the future. But sometimes a prophet comes just to bring a word of rebuke, a word of of, uh, condemnation from the Lord uh, to the people, or a word of command, Uh, and that's what we see here from Haggai and Zechariah. Uh, Haggai especially comes to rebuke their, their lethargy and their sloth in not rebuilding this temple, in not doing the work that God has for them. So Haggai comes essentially to light a fire under these guys. He says, hey, get up, get going, get busy. It's time for you to repent and do the Lord's work. And so it's his prophecy that gets them moving again. So what I wanna do is to read Haggai chapter one for us because it'll really set in context uh, what was happening here uh, at this time so that we understand before we preach the rest of the uh, passage today. So Haggai chapter 1, in the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to be put into a purse with holes." Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of... And Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. And then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. So convicting words from Haggai. And that's just what Israel needed to get themselves back on track. Now, Zechariah also prophesied at the same time and his his prophecy is 14 chapters of of his visions of what the completed temple is going to look like and ultimately how it points toward Jesus who would ultimately fulfill the temple. Well, the Jews, they listened. They finally repented. They got back on track after 16 years. And, And what is repentance? It's simply acknowledging your sin, Uh, deciding that it's wrong, and then turning away from it and back to the Lord and his ways. And so that's what the Jews did. What we find uh, so far in the book of Ezra is that uh, God allowed them to return. The return of the exiles was chapter 1 and 2. And then they rebuilt the altar and the temple foundations. That was Ezra 3. But then when they met resistance in Ezra 4, well, that's what shut the whole thing down. And they they languished uh, for years. The people of the land intimidated them and they stopped working on the temple that God wanted them to build. And instead, they returned to their own ancestral plots of land and they built their own houses uh, and they lived comfortably in paneled houses, it says, while the temple of the Lord lay dormant. Now, how long this would have gone on without the prophecy of Haggai and Zechariah is unknown. It may have gone on forever. And so God graciously sent them a prophet or two. And Haggai jolted them from their comfort. And he told them that the reason why they were poor was because God was judging them for their sinful attitudes, because they took comfort in their own homes rather than doing the task that God had sent them to accomplish, which was to rebuild the temple. So as a result, God withheld the rain, and curses followed their disobedience. And uh, Haggai mentions at least four in chapter one, you might find more, but there is uh, famine, there is poverty, there's hunger, and then there is drought. So the harvest is minimal. They're not bringing in any crops, so there's not enough food to eat. There's not enough water, so there's there's not enough wine. There's not enough to keep the animals alive, which means there's not enough to eat, and there's not enough to clothe because they made their clothes from the animals. So uh, they didn't have any of these things. And if they were wondering why uh, these things were happening to them, why they were putting their money into purses with holes, well, Haggai leaves them no doubt. He sets them straight. He says, uh, this is why. Uh, because you have neglected the temple. And so he gives them three commands in chapter 1, verse 8 Go up, bring wood, rebuild, get busy, get going, don't neglect the house of the Lord. And so he showed them that they were sinning by these sinful attitudes, choosing comfort over conflict and apathy over tenacity. And to their credit, they repented. And that's what we see in Ezra chapter 5 and 6. <clears throat> Haggai showed them their sin and that the way of blessing was through repentance and obedience and renewed effort to build God's temple. And then the Lord says, I am with you. And the Lord was with them, as we'll see throughout. Uh, Zerubbabel finally gets up and he rallies the troops and he says, get the materials. Let's go back up the hill. We're going to build this temple. And so that's what they did. Now I have called this series that we started I guess five weeks ago now uh, on Ezra Nehemiah, I've called it the rebirth of a nation Uh, and I've done that for a reason because this is where we find ourselves and our nation Uh, because since we've started uh, this series I've been trying to highlight Uh, the things that are required for national revival and repentance. And what we see in this uh, book so far is that the Jews, they started off well. They they returned, they began to rebuild, they built the altar, they started on the foundations, uh, and, and things were going well. But then they got intimidated and they stopped. They put the temple on the back burner. They put themselves and their own houses on the front burner. And so God judged them with famine and drought. And I think this is where we can see ourselves in the story today. Uh, We can apply it here because uh, we may be right where the Jews were uh, just before Haggai prophesied. I mean, as a nation, we live in paneled houses, right? We live in relative comfort. And as a nation, we are apathetic towards God. We've kicked him out of the public square. We're against most of the things that God is for. We live in a culture that rejects God, And sadly, even the church in many places has been more influenced by culture than it has influenced culture. The church is supposed to lead the people of God and not be led by the culture. And sometimes we've gotten it backwards. Uh, And so the church doesn't have the influence that it it should uh, in culture. And so God may be judging our country right now. And I don't think uh, you really need to look around so hard to see that, that this may be God's judgment. Uh, have we ever been more divided? I mean, politically, obviously, right? Uh, we have... Uh, vaccine mandates, we have masks, we have wokeism, we have the border crisis, we have the budget deficit, we have supply chain issues, gas prices, inflation, abortion, our attitudes toward Afghanistan and Israel and global warning and sexuality and gender. All of these things are, are tearing our country apart. We can't look for the news at, for five minutes without seeing all of these things uh, being talked about in the news. And I'm not up here saying those aren't important issues. They are important issues. But the thing is that those issues have sidetracked us from the most important issue, which is that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and God has graciously provided a Savior for us. And we're sidetracked with all this other stuff. We've left God. We've forgotten God and the one who provides the security and comfort and unity to begin with. And so we need to collectively recognize God's sovereignty and authority, and we should confess our sin nationally and personally, like our national sin and our personal sin. We need to confess that and just bow before the Lord in all humility. But our country has put God on the back burner right now and ourselves on the front burner, and we're choosing to fight with each other rather than to unite with each other uh, as humble servants of God. And that's where we find ourselves, and I believe this This judgment on our country that we're experiencing is because of our collective refusal to submit to him and worship him properly, to, to love others as he has loved us. And this is the same reason God exiled the Jews to Babylon in the first place, right? They went after other gods. And that's what we're doing as a country. We're going after other gods. And so if we want God to relent, we have to repent, uh, that's really all there is to it. If we want his judgment to relent, we have to repent. We need to pray that we would be even more committed to God and his holiness and his morality and in his desire to reach the lost. And I think when we do that, then God will lift his hand of judgment. And if we don't, well, we know what God will do. He will hand us over to the consequences of our sin. That's Romans chapter one. And, and I don't know what that might look like. I mean, maybe it's, it gets worse than it is today. I think it probably will. But we always have to remember the good news. And the good news is that our God is a God of grace. He's always there to meet repentant people just where they are. And he did that for Israel. He did that for them when they were wandering in the desert, when they were in exile, in captivity, when they were in the lion's den, uh, fiery furnaces. Wherever God finds his repentant people, uh, there he meets them. And so God loves repentance. It shows a submissive and a humble heart. And the Jews, they'd fallen away from God, but when they turned back to God, well, there he is, right there to meet them. God graciously sent Haggai. They repent, and the Lord says, I am with you. Uh, they received Haggai's rebuke, and they got back to work, and I believe he'll be with us as in our nation if we repent as well. All right, back to Ezra chapter 5. Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, And Jeshua, the son of Josedach, arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. You remember back uh, last chapter, uh, who was there uh, when they were trying to rebuild the temple of God? Well, it wasn't the prophets, right? It was their enemies. Uh, Sixteen years ago, the, the people of the land discouraged them, and they frightened them, and they sent counselors against them. Uh, but because they repented, now God was with them and he sent his prophets and the prophets were with them, encouraging them the exact opposite of what was going on 16 years ago. So a big difference. And, and what we see is that uh, from the beginning of the book of Ezra, when they're engaged in this construction process, when they're being obedient to God all the way through the end of Nehemiah, uh, we understand that God blessed them for their obedience. Uh, And yet, as soon as they started building the temple again, again, they faced new challenges, Uh, this one from a governor uh, by the name of Tatnai. Now, as we read this next section, which is going to take us all the way through the end of chapter six, I want us to see that there are three ways, at least, that God blessed them, that God proved that he was with them during this time. And the first one was that they did not stop working, whereas they did stop working in chapter four. Uh, Verse 3, at that time, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shithar and their colleagues came to them and spoke to them thus, who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish this structure? Then we told them accordingly what the names of the men were who were reconstructing this building. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until a report could come to Darius. And then a written reply be returned concerning it. So in chapter four, it was the enemies of Judah who tried to stop the work, right? They were the ones who caused trouble. They threatened them, they frightened them, and the Jews backed down. But here, uh, it's not so much antagonism from enemies, but you know, governmental red tape is what's involved here. Tatnai, <clears throat> he's the governor of the province, and he sees this building going up, and he's like, well, who authorized this thing? Let me see your building permit. Uh, that's what's going on here, and so the Jews uh, have to deal uh, with Tatni. And what we see is, is most importantly, that the eye of their God was on the Jews. And so he, they did not stop them from working. And here we see God's sovereignty, proof that God is with them uh, because of their obedience. God was proving that he was with them. So that's the first way. They didn't stop working. The second way God proved that he was with them was in this correspondence. Now, Tat and I is going to write to Darius and there's gonna be correspondence back and forth. And we see, uh, that uh, the returning Jews were allowed to present their case which is a big deal for them to be able to say exactly what happened and to have it translated to the king uh, properly and factually and so we see that Ezra had a copy of the letter that Tat and I wrote to Darius and this is what it said to Darius the king all peace Let it be known to the king that we have gone to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God, which is being built with huge stones and beams are being laid in the walls. And the work is going on with great care and is succeeding in their hands. Then we asked the elders and said to them, who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names so as to inform you that we might write down the names of the men who were at their head." So we see already Tatnai is giving an unbiased account. There's really nothing malicious in this account. He's just laying out the facts. The Jews are rebuilding the temple. They're laying huge stones and beams, and the work is succeeding in their hands. But what's really cool about this is that Tatnai's letter includes the Jews' response and gives it factually. Here's what they said in reply. They answered us saying, we are the servants of God of heaven and earth and are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. So... Uh, what we see is that they didn't give their names so much as calling themselves servants of God. And isn't that something? Uh, humility, submission. They acknowledged their sin and that God allowed Babylon to crush them and destroy them because of their own disobedience. And that's great that they were so humble, but what's really neat about it is that Tatnai included all of this factual information in his letter to Darius. Uh, even the utensils are mentioned in the letter. And so tatnai didn't write anything inflammatory. He didn't write anything untrue. He allowed the Jews to uh, profess their defense. Now, tatnai held the pen and he held the power, right? He could have written anything he wanted in that letter. And yet he gave uh, Darius the uh, information exactly as the Jews had given it to him. And so tatnai seems like a reasonable guy. He asked the king, well, what should I do? And that's verse 17. Now, if it pleases the king, let a search be conducted in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon. If it be that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to rebuild this house of God at Jerusalem and let the king send us his decision concerning this matter. So the letter goes off to Darius. It might have taken weeks. It might have taken months for the letter to reach Darius, for them to search the archives and for a letter to make it back to Jerusalem. But the blessing is that the entire time, they never stopped working. They kept building. So repentance, humility, submission, and obedience lead to blessing. And that's what we see throughout these chapters. So the first two ways God blessed them. First, they didn't stop working. Second, uh, their defense got presented to uh, Darius uh, intact. And so now we come to the third way that God showed that he was with them, And that is that Darius found Cyrus's memo and issued a favorable ruling. I will read verses one through five. Then King Darius issued a decree and a search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon. In Ecbatana, in the fortress, which is in the province of Media, a scroll was found and there was written in it as follows. Memorandum. In the first year of King Cyrus, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the temple, the place where sacrifices are offered, be rebuilt and let its foundations be retained, its height being 60 cubits and its width 60 cubits, uh, with three layers of huge stones and one layer of timbers, and let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. And also let the gold and silver utensils of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be returned and brought to their places in the temple in Jerusalem and you shall put them in the house of God." Well, interesting, they didn't find the decree in Babylon, but they found this memorandum in Ekbatana. Now, this is Cyrus's summer home. This is 300 miles north of Babylon in the province of Media. Now, they didn't have the internet back then, right? and they didn't have Microsoft Word where they could store their documents and easily pull up this document, this memorandum, this decree, right? This is a needle in a haystack looking all over uh, the Babylonian Persian Empire to try and find this thing. Uh, So you see, again, God's hand at work, how hard this must have been to come up with this. This is a massive undertaking. Uh, So just again, more proof that God was with them. And one thing I want you to see is that here uh, in this memorandum, it's not the official decree, but it's a memorandum apparently that fleshed out the decree in greater detail. Uh, It says here that the temple was to be 60 cubits high and wide, which is 90 feet high and 90 feet wide. A cubit is a foot and a half approximately. And it's supposed to be made of courses of large stones and timbers. Now, when you think about it, that is twice as high and three times as wide as Solomon's original temple. That was what Cyrus authorized. So it seems like Cyrus wanted a bigger temple that he could put his stamp of approval on and say, "You know, I'm even greater than this temple of Solomon. And maybe the fact that we saw back in chapter three where the priests and the Levites were crying and weeping and lamenting over the foundation of the temple has something to do with the fact that maybe the Jews didn't build this thing out to the full specs that Cyrus's decree would have allowed. And so that's why we have some lamenting, some weeping from some of the older people who had seen the older building and who uh, thought that they were gonna build something bigger and nicer perhaps. Well, if you read Haggai chapter two, what we see in Haggai chapter two is that God is saying, don't be discouraged about this temple that's smaller and less spectacular than the temple of Solomon, uh, because God will still fill that temple. Uh, God in in Ezekiel chapter 10 and 11 talks about how he leaves the temple before it is destroyed. But here in chapter uh, two of Haggai in verse five and verse seven, he says, my spirit is in your midst and I will fill this house with glory. So God doesn't need a spectacular temple for his glory to fill it, right? He can fill any place he wants to fill and God promised that he was with them. And so Darius uh, also discovered that Cyrus had, had decreed that uh, the, the Persians would pay the cost of this entire thing from the Persian treasury. So he orders Tatanai to do the same. So uh, God just keeps showing up for the Jews, doesn't he, as they're trying to do this rebuild. As soon as they repent, God shows up in a big, big way. He was with the Jews. He wanted the temple rebuilt. And then in verses 6 to 12, Darius responded with a letter to Tatnai. And rather than read the whole thing, I'm just going to sum it up here. Here's what he says. He says, leave them alone. Let them rebuild. Pay the cost of the rebuild from the royal treasury. Give them all the food they need, even the food for their sacrifices, the animals for their sacrifices. Ask them to pray for the life of the king and the king's sons. And anybody caught violating this thing is going to be impaled on a beam from their own house. So Darius orders these people back off. This is God's work, we want it done. I want you to finance the rebuild, I want you to supply their food, give them the animals they need for sacrifice, and the penalties for violating this were quite severe. This is like what happened to Haman a couple decades later in the book of Esther when he was found to be a traitor. What they did was they took a beam, which is you know a big round log, almost like a telephone pole, they would sharpen the top end of it so it would look like a giant pencil, and they'd put your body on top of that point, grab you by the limbs, and pull down. Now, that is a very unpleasant way to go. And I'm sure it would be quite the deterrent from anybody who was thinking about, you know, maybe being a pain in the neck to the Jews who were trying to rebuild. Uh, The thought of being impaled uh, might deter them. So uh, we see uh, Darius very serious about enforcing this decree. Again, more evidence how God is with them. And so now we see that the Jews took full advantage of this second chance to finish the temple. And what we'll see in these last verses is that continued obedience results in continued blessings. Uh, And the first thing we see is that they completed the temple, verses 13 to 15. Then Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani and and their colleagues carried out the decree with all diligence, just as King Darius had sent. And the elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. And they finished building according to the command of God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar. It was the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. So four years have passed now. Now it's uh, 516. And so probably the temple was built based on that calendar. This is the third day of the month of Adar during the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. That was probably March 12th. 516 BC. So isn't it cool how how specific the Bible is? It tells us exactly when. And so the next thing they did after they completed the temple, just like Solomon in the days of old, they dedicated the temple. And the sons of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered for the dedication of this temple of God a hundred bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats corresponding to the number of the tribes of Israel. Then they appointed the priests to their divisions and the Levites in their orders of service of God in Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. So what do we see? They're returning to the proper mode of worship, the way the Lord wants to be worshiped. They're going to worship him exactly that way, according to the law of Moses. Now this seems like a tremendous amount of animals, right? A hundred bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs. Uh, this is nothing in comparison to Solomon's temple where they, ordered, where they slaughtered 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. Uh, but even though it's less, it shows a great sincerity of heart. They, they used what they had. They showed their commitment to God and their sacrifices and in appointing the priests and Levites to serve according to the law of Moses, just as the law of Moses said. And then the next thing they do is they observe the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. 19 to 22, the exiles observed the Passover on the 14th of the first month for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were pure. Then they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, both for their brothers, the priests, and for themselves. The sons of Israel who returned from exile and all those who separated themselves from the impurity of the nations of the land to join them to seek the Lord God of Israel, they ate the Passover and they observed the feast of unleavened bread, seven days with joy for the Lord had caused them to rejoice and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel." Well, now here the focus shifts to how they purified themselves uh, from the people of the land. They they wanted to be sure they didn't resemble them in any way. That's why they wouldn't intermingle with them. That's why they wouldn't let them help rebuild the house of the Lord. Uh, And so they observed the Passover. They observed the Feast of Unleavened Bread for the first time in 70 years back in their land. And so then verse 22 shows God's sovereignty. He's over the whole thing, isn't he? From the beginning to end, uh, he caused them to rejoice. He turned the heart of the king toward them to encourage them. So we serve a great and mighty God. If he could do this for the exiles uh, in Babylon 2,500 years ago, he can do this for our country today. He's able to move governments. He's able to move kings. He's able to move rulers to rebuild his temple nothing is impossible for god but i think if we want him to bless america we need to return to him to repent just like the jews did so how do we do that just a couple of suggestions for us as we close the first one is that god has to be our first love you know there are so many things in the world that vie for our attention these days, right? So many things that we could make idols out of on the one hand, so many things that we could worry about on the other hand, so many things that can sidetrack us, that can distract us from God being our first love. So we, as Christians, we need to inspect our hearts. And this is something that we all need to do. You and I all need to do this just to make sure that there's nothing crowding God out from our hearts, that that God is truly our first love. And so if we love him, we'll obey his commandments. And so are we being obedient to his commandments? What is God asking us to do as a body collectively? What's he asking us to do? What is he asking you to do personally? What's he asking me to do? And are we being obedient to the call of God on our lives? God judged the returning exiles for their apathy and lethargy with famine and thirst and poverty. Uh, And Jesus warned the churches of uh, Asia in Revelation about their lukewarmness and and about their uh, failure to to remember him because they had forgotten their first love. Uh, And so if we have failed to do something, uh, if we fail to show that God is our first love, Uh, or if we're not doing something that he has called us to do, well, the way to get back on track is really quite easy. And and it's this, when we fail, just repent and make it right with the Lord. That's all we have to do. Repent, remember our first love, recommit ourselves to whatever he's called us to do because there's always grace, uh, no matter what we've done or no matter what we failed to do. Repent and receive God's blessing. So we need to pray uh, that we would be strong, Pray for each other, pray for our country, pray for our leaders. God has shown throughout history that he will always forgive and receive his people who repent of their sin and who turn back to him. He loved us enough to sacrifice his own son on the cross for us so that if we believe in him, Uh, that we will have eternal life. And so we know that he's a God of infinite grace. He'll never reject us, even if we've had moments of apathy or disobedience or even apostasy when we turn back to him. He's a God who's worthy of our worship. He sent his son to die for us, his son Rose from the grave so that we might have eternal life. And so this is the God we serve, and if we love Him, we'll examine ourselves, return to Him if we need to return to Him, and, and just continue to ask His blessings not only on ourselves, but on our nation. And I know that we will find a God who is there, uh, who is there to receive us and will bless our obedience and repentance. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the God of grace that you are. <clears throat> Lord. We do confess our sin uh, nationally uh, as a country. The things that we uh, have have done in terms of forgetting who you are, forgetting uh, that you are the king of the universe, Lord, and, and that we've gone about it our own way. And Lord, that our ways are not right. Every man does what is right in his own eyes sometimes, Lord, and I think that's where we find ourselves. And so uh, we confess these sins, Lord, and we confess our personal sins, Lord. Uh, each one of us has something in our own hearts that... Uh, is a distraction from you, Lord, and I pray that we would each examine ourselves and figure out what that thing is, Lord, whether it's a worry or an idol or whatever it is, Lord, and that we would push that thing aside and put you in the proper place in our hearts, Lord, uh, that we, you would know from our actions and from our obedience that you are our first love, Lord, And we just thank you for the grace that you always show in bringing repentant people back to you, Lord. I pray that you'll do that for our country. We are in such desperate need, Lord. And so we ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.